0: the road of peace sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict tommy said mr president you're wrong now that takes a lot of guts i'm for peace and quiet mr Lude, it's why i came to the u.n quiet diplomacy This month on Foreign Affair, we're talking about spy balloons, the hysteria and ever-rising rhetoric. uh, Certainly evokes Cold War memories for me. Our excellent panel will share their views shortly. Then the scene being set in Myanmar for what many fear will be violent elections as the military regime tries to exploit elections in its favour. We'll examine... Japan's shift away from pacifism, an ethos it's been tethered to for decades, and how development aid, particularly for the Indo-Pacific, is the new priority for Canberra, and how it just may be newly influential within certain circles too. So please do welcome to A Foreign Affair, Sam Roggeveen, Director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program. Amanda Hodge is the Australian Southeast Asia Correspondent based in Jakarta, and Bridie Rice, who's CEO of the Development Intelligence Lab. Hello to you. Wall.
1: Hello Hi, Jody. Hello Jody.
0: Let's talk first about the uh, giant Chinese blimp uh, floating in the room. It has dominated US media and political discussion. Pieces of the downed balloon pulled from the sea off the Carolina coast. Proof the Pentagon says China's weather balloon claim is nothing but hot air. Your a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman says, I have no knowledge about America's claim that this balloon is part of a fleet. I think it could be part of the information and public opinion war that the U.S. is waging against China. The international community can see clearly who's the world's largest espionage and surveillance country.
1: I can assure you this was not for civilian purposes. That, that is, we are 100 percent clear about that.
0: Now, Sam, it's been about two weeks since um, the balloons <laughs> entered uh, the picture and um, entered American airspace. And quite a few others have been down, but uh, subsequently, but all pretty harmless, it would seem. Uh, and China's response has shifted quite a lot, um, initially uh, pretty conciliatory and then a bit indignant. And I don't know what you'd think of it. it is right now. Where do you see this headed?
1: It's a it's an inconvenience, but I think the media and uh, social media coverage of this is probably sorry the puns come so easily. I was going to say blown it out of proportion. <laughs> um, so, it, it, Blinken had to postpone his trip uh, to Beijing, and I think that was understandable because. It became such a big media story. I mean, we now have, you know, late-night talk show hosts in uh, uh, in the US even making it grist for their uh, comedy routines. Um, the Republicans would have uh, raked Blinken over the coals for uh, mm. being soft on China had he gone. Uh, but my instinct at the time, and it's not really changed, is that this is, this is just a delay for... Uh, uh, for the sake of, of waiting for that, for the, for that dust to settle. And then, um, and then they'll find an opportunity for, uh, for Blinker to go again and for, um, for the relationship to, to hopefully find, a. Uh, a new level. I
0: must say key, absolutely key, it would seem to me, uh, was what routine avenues for talk exist. Um, I mean, that's one of the main takeaways from the Cold War that stopped the Cold War from becoming a hot war, one could argue, at several occasions. And, and, you know, you just think what exists now between the US and China that they can just happily turn to, to make sure that it it doesn't, you know, when the media does go hysterical, um, that it doesn't escalate and become something, quotes, inevitable occurs.
1: Yeah, there are mechanisms like that. So there is a hotline between the two militaries, but my understanding is that they don't quite function as they're supposed to, When the phone doesn't always get picked up when it rings. I think another aspect to your observation there, Geraldine, is that the sheer novelty of a uh, of a balloon being at the centre of uh, of this controversy probably changed things as well, because the the international practices are so um, unfamiliar and un unpracticed uh, when it comes to these uh, kind of intelligence gathering devices. We're more used to fixed wing aircraft mm. um, flying along the coastline, for instance, and in fact, the US and China do have protocols for how. Uh, they behave when uh, American surveillance aircraft come up along the coast and they get intercepted by Chinese aircraft. Uh, they do have protocols estab- established for some years now for that. Um, balloons are just a new thing. So I, I guess, I mean, it's a very old technology, of course, but it, it's, it was fairly novel to see something like this happen. So that, that's also another reason why perhaps this was blown in a proportion and maybe we will see it being slightly less... Uh, Uh, distortionary in future instances. Well,
0: we'll, yeah, we'll see. Uh, What about drones, by the way? Are there sort of real protocols around drones uh, between the big big powers?
1: I'm not aware of them. I I mean, there was uh, an incident of an American uh, drone getting shot down over Iran, I believe it was in 2011, which was a, a pretty big story at the time. And there are Unofficial reports has never been confirmed by the Americans that they have an even more advanced drone drone program, which, uh, you know, can overfly even the airspace of of really advanced countries, uh, military uh, adversaries such as China or Russia. So um, it's yet to be properly tested. But in a sense, it it kind of lowers the stakes. Drones lower the stakes because there's no human on board. So you don't get a repeat of uh, like the the Gary Powers incident. Yes. uh, during the Cold War. And, and and I guess that's true of the balloons as well. See, the, uh,
0: I noticed that uh, President Biden said nothing suggests that the three later objects downed by fighter jets over Canada and the US were Chinese spy balloons and were likely tied to private companies or research institutions. Mm. He says he has no regrets about downing another Chinese balloon off South Carolina and does not intend to apologise to China's President Xi. But um it seems to have moved on. I suppose the key thing is when Blinken gets invited again and when
1: he chooses to take it up. Um, right, yes, I, I agree. Um, and, you know, both sides will have learned some lessons here. I, I think the interesting thing here is what China hoped to gain and the the risks that it evidently was prepared to take in order to, you know, win some intelligence gains. Mm-hmm. Um, you could draw the conclusion that... Um, China took a took a really big gamble here because it thought the intelligence value was so high. or I think to me the more persuasive view is that actually this was a decision made down the line somewhere and it wasn't subject to political oversight or or at least not as much political oversight uh, as necessary to determine whether any intelligence gains uh, from a mission like this were going to balance out the uh, the, the clear uh, PR um, damage that China has suffered So
0: yes, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder where that person is now. I suspect you're right. Um, Look, just to be a bit silly, to quickly wrap it up, at least the White House has helped us clear up one thing you'd have to agree. It's poured cold water on extraterrestrial
2: involvement there is no indication of aliens or terrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. Um, I, I, I'm not.
1: Will you tell us? I'm just,
2: you know, I loved E.T., the movie, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it there.
0: <laughs> that was White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Well, let's look at a struggle much closer to home. Uh, Amanda, you've written a very powerful piece about how the military junta in Myanmar is moving towards holding elections to legitimise their regime. How dangerous would you judge this situation to be given the opposition that is now really ranged against them?
3: Yeah. Um, Myanmar is kind of what, um, what we might talk of as a forgotten war, isn't it? I mean, it's been completely overshadowed by Ukraine. It is mostly contained within its border, though obviously um, refugees are spilling out all the time. Um, and the, the junta is two years into its, well, um, attempted coup because it hasn't got control of the country. It was supposed to end its state of emergency on February the 1st which, 1st, which was the second anniversary of the coup, which ousted the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi. It wasn't able to do that. And the reason for that is that it had to admit quite. Remarkably, that it didn't have control of at least one third of the country. So what it was going to do, it was going to end the state of emergency on February the first, and then it was going to install a, you know, a sort of proxy caretaker government, which would have been all of the generals taking their uniforms off and putting on suits. And then within six months, it would have held elections. That's not going to happen by August this year. Because of the, the state of insecurity in the country, um, the opposition, the armed opposition now to the junta is much more organised than it was even six months ago. You know, there's something like 200 people's defence forces and then, you know, levels under that of sort of like dad's army militias etc and they're all work or a lot of them are working with sympathetic armed ethnic organizations that have been fighting the state for autonomy for many decades so we have this sort of broiling um situation inside the country now not just on the border regions with india and china which as you can imagine is upsetting to those you know two large asian powers but in in the centre of the country, which has always been loyal to the military in the past and very much a Buddhist, you know, enclave within the country. So any attempt to to stage elections in that environment is going to be so bloody, um, you know, and Mm. I think so costly to the junta that even they had to admit that they needed to do more to establish their control of the country before they hold elections. What that means, um, you know, what more they can do, we don't know because they're already, um, they've already switched to an air war with these sort of indiscriminate strikes, not just on what they think are legitimate targets. But, I mean, everyone is a legitimate target to this junta. They've demonstrated quite um, amply that they don't discriminate between
0: armed fighters and civilians. And the tragedy, as you outlined it, is also that there was so much private and NGO investment and capacity building happening and about to happen in Myanmar prior to the takeover, especially green energy projects.
3: Yeah, Yeah, it's an – oh, God, you know, if you think too much about it, it, you just crumple because it's Mm. such a tragedy. And um, Sean Turnell, who who is the Australian economist who was released in November last year after 21 months in custody, in the – me and my junta's custody, talks about this, you know, the sort of collapse of the economy, the unravelling of 10 years of reform. Um, And there were, you know, there were companies ready to invest – hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, um, hydro electricity, in, in solar electricity and all sorts of things. That isn't happening because nobody's paying their bills in Myanmar. One of the um, ways that people who, who don't feel they can take up arms or who don't want to, you know, directly confront the soldiers or the military, one of the ways that they're able to protest is by simply not paying the state. Mm. So there is no money coming into the electricity sector. So no investors want to invest in Myanmar. And as you will have seen, you know, the Myanmar activist community is incredibly um, busy unmasking any companies or countries that continue to invest in this illegitimate Regime. So destroyed a state in order it. to rebuild it. <laughs> exactly. Mm. And, and yet again, I might add, because it's happened before.
0: Bridie, any thoughts? Because this is very much your bailiwick.
2: Yeah, Amanda makes a really good point here. I mean, prior to the coup, Myanmar had a really complex set of transitions going on. I mean, it was a, a nation that was switching from military to democratic rule, from a closed to an open market from conflict to peace, and it was already a really, really complex development landscape. And of course, you fast forward to now, and those extreme pressures on the basics of health and and education and and basic food insecurity have just increased. So the question for Australia as we watch this tragedy unfold is really also about where are we best placed to support? And what we've seen is a real caution and care and worry amongst the Australian development community and government. Um, and the real crisis is how do you get help to save the lives of hundreds and thousands and millions of people who are in jeopardy right now, but at the same time, make sure that that very assistance isn't mm. propping up a regime. So coming into an election perhaps late next year, this year, thereafter, and with all that we're predicting, I think this is a space that Australia is going to have to watch very carefully and be ready to respond rapidly to.
0: Yes, I agree. Uh, And look, I just want to head uh, to Indonesia briefly to point out A very important meeting, I think, Amanda Hodge, of um, NU uh, Nadulatu Ulama in Surabaya last week. Now, this is one of the largest Islamic organisations in the world and some of its leadership are urging Muslims to consider the importance of the nation-state over a caliphate. So this is very interesting. And the importance of the United Nations in Islamic law. It's really a critical look at what they say are problematic aspects of Islam. Islamic jurisprudence, and they're seeing it as a way of countering extreme, extremism. Oh, I think this has been rather underreported. Can I just read from an NU statement? It is neither feasible nor desirable to re-establish a universal caliphate that would unite Muslims throughout the world in opposition to non-Muslims. And that's very interesting language, Amanda. How, how influential mm. do you, well, how influential is NU in Indonesia? Would this be seriously debated there?
3: ENU is very influential. In fact, it's the most influential Muslim group in, in the country, and one, and I think it's the largest Islamic group in the world. It is mostly moderate, um, but it's very factionalized, extremely factionalized. And the faction that is talking about this um, is headed by Yaya Chalil Stakuf, who, who's a very thoughtful Islamic leader. Um, whether it's debated Look, I didn't see much reporting of this myself. I, found, I find it incredibly interesting. But the thing that I think works in um, this group's favour in in posing this argument is essentially what they're trying to do is thread the needle of Panchasila and Islam. Now, Pan- Panchasila is the underlying foundation of the Unitary Republic of Constitution, which upholds the nation-state. Of, of Indonesia. Of Indonesia. Yes, mm. and this is in constant um, in constant kind of battle with those more orthodox or, or conservative uh, Muslims who believe that Indonesia should be an Islamic state, and that was a battle that, that occurred during the writing of the 1945 Constitution. And those who who believe it should have been an Islamic state believe they were cheated by Sukarno, and that that has been a thread mm. throughout. Indonesia's modern history or the, the the history of the Indonesian modern state. So it's no surprise that um, President Joko Widodo should have been happy to speak at this rally after. It was the 100th uh, anniversary, wasn't it, of Enu? Exactly. Mm. It, it, it has the state on side because it's trying to, you know, tie Pancasila and Islam together, but the, it it also has a, uh, a history, Enu, of raising these, you know, quite cutting edge views of Islam. And that's quite fascinating because I always feel like in some ways Indonesian Islam has a little bit of a a cringe in some sense. It always feels Versus like the Arabist look, Islam. Yeah. It mm. always feels like it needs to look to the sort of custodians of the two holy mosques, right? The the Saudis, etc., the Wahhabis, that they're somehow purer followers of the faith than they are because of their, you know, syncretic mm-hmm. Islam here. But they're getting a this I think is a is an indication of their growing confidence.
0: And that can only be a good thing for international Islam, I think. I couldn't agree more. Um, Now, um, we're going to um, move beyond those specifics to um, Australian aid and development assistance, which, of course, is very important in Indonesia. But there seems to be a bit of a, a fundamental shift in how Australia thinks of itself helping our region. Bridie, this is your specialty. Can you bring us up to speed, please?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So last week, the Minister for International Development, Pat Conroy, had a bit of a, a cheeky ad lib on a podcast. And what he said, which was a very Canberra in joke, was that really AusAid, Australia's aid and development old agency that we decommissioned about a decade ago, really needed to take over our foreign affairs. Department. <laughs> yes, I saw that. I was very naughty. Absolutely. And I mean, you should have seen the ripples that sent through the department here in Canberra. There are a few noses out of joint. Um, but what he also went on to say was actually development uh, really needed to be seen on the same footing, given the same prominence as diplomacy in our country and i guess on the one hand um this is you know shock horror um we are a country that i think has probably left development out in the cold it's a poor little cousin of our blue blood foreign policy community for quite a while now um but on the other hand for those of us who've worked in development over the last little while it's an absolute no brainer it's common sense um development you know conversations about jobs and and specifically
0: and if you wouldn't mind how might that um, how might that happen say in the pacific
2: Yeah, so what you're currently seeing is Australia's basically rewriting the rule book on development. We've got our ministers um, taking seriously their relationships in the Pacific. They're visiting a lot more often. We're seeing an increased amount of money spent through our aid budget into the Pacific. But I reckon more excitingly, what we're actually seeing is Australia starting to think of ourselves as a country connected to the Pacific and to the broader Indo-Pacific as well. So things like labour mobility.
0: And yeah, haven't we just announced effectively a green card um, between the Pacific and us that uh, people can apply for a green card for for ease of movement?
2: Yeah, that's all right. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done before we quite get there. But absolutely, our government is actually saying, you know what, development isn't just about an aid project anymore. That's just one piece of the pie. We're looking to connect our markets. We're looking to connect our labour. We're looking to rethink our visa system so that we can have more integration with countries in the region and that is how we're going to be a good development partner.
0: It's a ballot, isn't it, for a new Pacific engagement visa which will allow up to 3,000 nationals of uh, Pacific Island countries and Timor-Leste to migrate to Australia as permanent residents each year. That's that's really what I'm talking about. That's right.
3: Yeah, and visas are this, are this sort of ongoing irritant between Australia and our neighbourhood. It's the one, you know, that you hear people and governments complain about it all the time, that there's no ease of, you know, movement, no labour mobility, the lack of short-term work visas, which would be good for, you know, the Southeast Asian labour force and great for Australia, which which is lacking, you know, labour mm. at the moment. And it's, you know, until they get sort of that sorted, we're not going to have the sort of
1: trade
0: relationship we really want. Mm. Okay. Well, yes. You were going to say something, Sam?
1: Look, Geraldine, just to be the the stick in the mud here, I, I don't think Pat Conroy is right, actually. I, I don't think that the two things, uh, aid and development on the one hand and diplomacy on the other, belong on the same level. I, I do think aid is a, it is, is a subset of our diplomacy, um, in, a, in a very sort of abstract and old-fashioned way, when 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 a foreign nation decides that it wants something from Australia, something that we are not prepared to give away, then they have two choices. they can either fight us for it or they can negotiate with us. Now thankfully, overwhelmingly they choose negotiation rather than fighting. But when you think of it that way, you know the diplomacy is essentially a, a, a civilized proxy for, for conflict in international affairs and that that really is the that really is at the core of what our diplomacy is and um, uh, aid and development is one tool in that in that tool chest. Oh, right. But
2: Sam, <laughs> Sam, don't you think that, um, you know, going back in time, the idea of development came out of the Marshall Plan. When countries get interested in development, it's an absolute indicator that we're coming to a global tipping point. I mean, when our ministers go into the region and have discussions with their ministerial counterparts, they're talking about jobs, about health, about visa access, development I think is actually becoming the language of diplomacy in our near neighborhood it's not the only language um, but it is certainly not just an instrument it could actually be the way we engage in influence and increase our power in the region yes. sometimes, it, it diplomacy, all of that.
3: sometimes diplomacy provides cover for our aid and development though I know like here in Indonesia there are programs that the Indonesian government might not particularly embrace like um you know development or or, or programs for you know gender equality or you know, lgbt and we couldn't do these things without the diplomatic cover that that's provided
2: hmm. absolutely i think amanda indonesia is a great example of where those tools stand side by side in the, in the bilateral relationship for sure
0: well, we were. I mean, that's what we were talking about in the earlier part of, of the program: is the the role of diplomacy in Ethiopia in that extraordinary. I mean, that's where you absolutely see the need for for uh, diplomacy to 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 come front and centre. Um, that's a good argument to <laughs> to be involved in, and I want to move finally to Japan. And I remember that the Heve Lemahieu from the from the Lowy looking at their power index talked about the crucial role that Japan was now playing in its diplomatic core, very, very successful. Uh, now, there are some historic shifts underway there. Late last year, Japan announced a doubling of the defence budget over the next five years and the acquisition of weapons to counter the perceived threat from China. So, Sam, you know, w- what is happening there?
1: Right, yes. Yeah. So I think earlier on when you mentioned this, you, you may have talked about Japan overturning its, its historic, at least since World War II, aversion to uh, mm. offensive capabilities. Yes, you, you, we are starting to see that happen. So the, the fact that defence spending is doubling is of course a dramatic gesture in and of itself. Uh, but, but even within that, we're seeing plans to acquire what are traditionally seen as offensive weapons, so cruise missiles, for instance, that can strike the Chinese mainland. So Japan is now ordering cruise missiles that can strike Chinese territory, which is a significant uh, shift for Japan, which has had a very defensive mindset and force structure. Remember, Mm. in in official terms, Japan doesn't actually have a military. It has what it calls a self-defense force, uh, now in in practice it 's a distinction with only a vague difference, but um, so far Japan has stopped short of um, of developing uh, you know purely offensive uh, weapons capabilities and it 's starting to do that now
0: i think it 's even got some small aircraft carriers you were telling me earlier is that right
1: yeah that 's correct it it' started um, actually refurbishing one of its um, amphibious ships and turn it into a mini aircraft carrier.
0: So is this uh, continuing the legacy that the late Shinzo Abe made before he was assassinated last year? Is this what um, Prime Minister Kishida is doing sort of quietly, is it?
1: Yeah, More I think that's a, reasonable, that's a reasonable conclusion, yeah. Look, I mean, a doubling of defence spending, you wouldn't call that quiet. Um, but it should be said, you know, that the, these things always... Imp- always come with capacity constraint concerns so uh, it's all very well to double the budget but do you know how to spend it Uh, do you have the personnel available to actually use all that kit and uh, so yeah it it comes with all sorts of uh, caveats I think
0: do we know how the public is taking this? Because this has been a long... I can't tell you how many times I've reported on this over the years with great uh, bewilderment, shall we say, even dismay among the public when people raise this. Now, is a thing
1: shifting? I can't speak to that very much, Geraldine. I would only say that, you know, th- these are not dramatic steps when you can put it in the context of what uh, China has achieved over the last 30 years in terms of its military modernisation process. Mm-hmm. So Japan is really only beginning to respond to something that has been evident for several decades now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because also um, the um, Marcos, the head of the Philippines, uh, President Marcos, he's in Japan and uh, there's a growing relationship between the philippines and japan and of course marcos is really reconfiguring the philippines too to be much more in the u.s camp and he's allowing the u.s to uh, access to a whole lot of um, uh, philippines bases that are quite close to taiwan i I don't is this something that you're aware of um, amanda that there's there's a sense from australia anyway that uh, marcos (laughs) is really quite shifting things
3: Yeah, and it's a surprising shift too because uh, there was a lot of talk during the Philippines election and just afterwards that Marcos, you know, uh, his family having been sort of spurned by America in some way over the um, kleptocracy of his father might not look too kindly on America. But in fact... He has shifted, um, at least in a defence sense, back towards their historical ally, which is the US. And that's, that's sort of in keeping with the trends of the region. Um, I think what happened in, in the Taiwan Strait last August really shook the Philippines because it's right in the line of fire there. It's very close to the, you know,
0: to the Taiwan... Which is to, to after Taipei. Nancy Pelosi's visit, we had all the Chinese uh, aircraft buzzing, right. buzzing and, the, the islands. Right, fences.
3: they surrounded mm taiwan and and uh, conducted their 3 days of live fire drills i think that that shook the Philippines and and really made them understand that they were very vulnerable and that um, this sort of um, game they were trying to play of balancing China and US against each other on defence wasn't going to work. China, as the Lowy Institute survey has shown in recent weeks, is definitely the main trading partner for all Southeast Asian nations, but they all rely on America for their security and, you know, for balancing the power in, mm. in the region and um, we're seeing a lot more of these, you know, defence pacts between in a trilateral sense, and also in a bilateral sense, to try and shore up the security of the region. And while no one's saying it's to balance out Chinese power, that is actually what it's trying yes. to do.
0: Yes, I might let you have the final word, Bridie, because um, Japan's quite interesting the way it uses its international development or aid agreements, isn't it, to build relationship. This is all part of their really very successful, as I understand it, uh, insinuation of themselves into a whole lot of areas where once they would have been on
2: the back foot? Yeah, that's right. Japan is sort of regarded as the the quiet achiever of the, the aid and development front. They've got a really sophisticated financing capability. So they're looking at financing various parts of infrastructure and in parts of Southeast Asia and the Pacific in particular, they're really well regarded as a great partner. I think the Japanese foreign ministries have done a lot of hard work um, with their diplomats and their development experts there, um, and they're listening acutely to what the region needs and just quietly going about that work, responding. And I wouldn't mind betting that Australia could take a lesson or two um, from the Japanese playbook when it comes to things like development finance, but also perhaps reducing some of the paternalism that I think sometimes we're a bit too well-known for in
0: the region. Mm, how interesting. Okay, look, thank you all very much indeed. That was a little quick tiptoe through the tulips of a lot that's happening as we <laughs> kick off the year. Sam Roggeveen, Amanda Hodge and Bridie Bryce, thank you very much. Thanks, Geraldine. Thanks, Jeremy.
3: Jeremy.
0: Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.